are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight we're looking together at Job chapter 6. If you'll turn there, we'll be reading together the first 30 verses. And you'll find this on page 420 of the Pew Bible. Job chapter 6, the whole chapter we'll read together. Hear the word of God. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass or the ox low over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt, or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. When they melt, they disappear. When it's hot, they vanish from their place." The caravans turn aside from their course. They go up into the waste and perish. The caravans of Tima look, the travelers of Sheba hope. They're ashamed because they were confident they come there and are disappointed. For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. Have I said, make me a gift, or from your wealth offer a bribe for me, or deliver me from the adversary's hand, or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? Teach me, and I will be silent. Make me understand how I've gone astray. How forceful are upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. But now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn, let no injustice be done. Turn now, my vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? Well, last time we were together looking at this book, we found courtly Eliphaz giving counsel to suffering Job. And of the three friends, he was the first to speak, and we assumed that he was the informal leader. He affirmed Job's piety, but accused him of some secret unconfessed sin. And in his mind, this had to be the case because Job's suffering was so severe. Eliphaz was operating on the principle that whatever one sows, that will he also 
reap. In his thinking, there was no nuance, no room for mystery. He sees only a one-to-one correspondence between act and consequence. If my actions are righteous, I'll prosper. If my actions are unrighteous, I'll suffer. He saw the universe as a tightly controlled, well-ordered moral order. And he left no room for the sovereign purpose of God, the mystery of evil and the shrapnel that comes from sin. You see, not everything we reap here arises from something we've sown. In a fallen world, Christians may and often do suffer many tribulations for other reasons. In this life, the wicked may prosper and the godly may suffer. Sometimes the outworking of God's plan seems totally contrary to justice. Asaph says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so Eliphaz's logic led him to conclude that Job was a grievous sinner because he was a mighty sufferer. And it's against that backdrop that Job responds with this heartfelt complaint. You see, Job was once wealthy. The greatest of all the people of the East, according to chapter 1. He and his wife were blessed with ten children, healthy, happy, harmonious, and their home was happy. Then suddenly, unexpectedly, he lost it all. And then he was afflicted with terrible boils. It would be an understatement to say that this was a shock to his system. Filled with grief, overwhelmed with sorrow, he was at first speechless. Then he lamented his losses and questioned the meaning of his pain. Why me? He asked. Why did all this happen? Why has my God forsaken me? And in his lament, he cursed the day of his birth and he longed for the day of death. His grief was deep. It was like the slow of despond or the pit of despair. And following Eliphaz's simplistic and self-righteous accusation, Job is understandably angry. And it's often the progression through which a grieving person will go. After the initial shock, he first questions, then he's depressed, then he becomes angry. And of course, it didn't help that Eliphaz was offering some foolish advice. But Job wasn't Jesus who was afflicted and yet opened not his mouth. Job opened his. And the first thing to consider is his defense against the false accusation. Anybody in his shoes would understand his lament in light of his suffering. If only people like Eliphaz would weigh his calamity and his vexation, they would understand. He not only fully understood, or he he didn't fully understand, nor did he duly consider how heavy his afflictions were. If properly weighed, one would see that they justify his depression. Job is defending himself against a claim that he's definitely un, defiantly unrepentant. Think of his losses. If we just stop and think of his bereavements, his marital strife, his physical affliction, Eliphaz had no idea of the depth and extent of his pain and suffering. Mary Lathrap wrote a poem And in the midst of that poem, she said this, Never criticize a man until you've walked a mile in his moccasins. 
Before you judge someone, Eliphaz, try to put yourself in his position. Think about the challenges and the experiences and the hardships that he's going through and empathize. You see, Eliphaz was being censorious. That's a fancy word. It simply means that he was severely critical. Mary Lathrop's poem was a faint echo of the teaching of Jesus who said, Judge not that you be not judged. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You see, we are called to make sound judgments, but we're not ever to be judgmental. There are those, elders, for example, whose duty it is to render judgments in some cases. But we must not assume or usurp the authority and judge one another, like Eliphaz. There is only one lawgiver and judge, according to James, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? We're not to speak evil of him. We're not to despise him. We're not to sit in judgment of him. But isn't it so easy to do? Especially with someone who is irritating. Ask ourselves if the irritation is a moral issue or is it a personal preference? You see, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for their proud self-righteousness. And like Eliphaz, they were rigid and severe in their criticisms of all those who were around them. Eliphaz affirmed the orthodox beliefs, but he held it with an air of self-righteousness. He never truly considered Job's position or weighed his vexation. In his mind, Job was reaping what he sowed, so don't lament, just repent. And so Job was angry. He looked for sympathy, and all he got was criticism. If his friend had properly weighed his suffering, he might have spoken more softly. You completely misunderstand my sufferings, he's saying in effect. I suffer not because I'm a great sinner, as you imply. I don't know the reasons, but my conscience is clear. And yet note Job's anger is not only with Eliphaz, but he's angry with the Lord himself. Because he had considered God his friend, so why had he forsaken him? The arrows of the Almighty are in me, he says. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. He calls them arrows because they had come so swiftly and so suddenly, one after another, and how it all seemed to Job so excessive and unjust. Job was not quite as shallow as Eliphaz, but at this point I think he lacked some depth. Job did not sin with his lips, and in the midst of his suffering, he worshipped. There was solid evidence of a sincere and saving faith in the coming Messiah. But as of yet, Job had not fully understood the sovereignty of God. He hadn't learned that we may not need to know the reason for our hardships. As God's speech will prove at the end of this book, his sovereignty is reason enough. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, said the psalmist, in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps. He is an infinite, eternal, and almighty God who reigns supreme. His power is absolute. His, no one can control or manipulate him, and he can do what he wants. And his hidden purpose is often mysterious. I can't explain it, and neither can you. Job was angry. 
He thought he had done everything he was supposed to do. He worshiped, he served, he obeyed, he was kind to the outcast, he was generous to the poor, he was conscientious about interceding on behalf of his children. He knew the believers faced trials and hardships, but this was unprecedented. The extent and the severity of his afflictions were so out of the ordinary. Who suffers like this? How could his God, the God he worshipped, permit such calamities to pile up upon him? And once again, he expresses his wish that God would end his miserable life. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope. He wants to die. I don't think many of us have ever been strained. Maybe you have but strained to the point of desiring death. Some have. And it's a very difficult and painful place to be. So much of the quality of our lives depends on our mental moods and our spiritual condition. Cochius said it this way, to live without comfort is harder than to die. But only the one whose sins are forgiven can die in peace and with joy. True? That's why it's so important to grow strong while we have opportunity. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Do it in fair weather because it can't be done when the weather is foul, in other words. Do you know what the evil days refer to? Old age. Bodily infirmity. Loss of strength. Increase of sorrow. Matthew Henry says, These years draw nigh when there will be no pleasure but in the reflection of a good life on earth and the expectation of a better life in heaven. So be faithful and diligent in the use of the means now so you can grow strong in the grace of Christ. Job's mood was dark. His spirit was dry. There was barely a flicker of hope. And he says, this would be my comfort. I would even exalt in pain unsparing. For I have not denied the words of the Holy One. He didn't do anything to warrant this, and he knows it. So go ahead and heat up the furnace, he says. Intensify the pain. It makes no difference to me because I've not turned away from the faith. But I'm at the end of my rope. My strength is almost totally depleted. So he sought to defend himself against Eliphaz's false accusation. But then secondly, his deep disappointment with the lack of sympathy. You see, Job is not just angry at the false accusation, but he's bothered by the harsh treatment that he's received. Eliphaz, he was the first friend who had spoken. And he says, he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. If he had spoken politely, he was rather harsh and unmerciful nonetheless. And what Job is saying is simply this, Eliphaz, as a friend, you should have extended at least a little bit of sympathy to me. Would you kick a man while he's down? You've practically denied the faith. Because you see, even if Job was guilty, 
Eliphaz was obligated to extend compassion. Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Sympathy and compassion cover a debt that we owe to one another. Beloved, let us love one another, says John, for love is from God. He who does not love his brother whom he's seen can't love God whom he's not seen. In other words, one who hates the visible image should not pretend to love the invisible God. We're called upon as image bearers to extend genuine compassion to those who suffer. Does not a sufferer need comfort? And are we not bound to relieve as best we can? It was the Samaritan who proved to be a neighbor to the Jew who had been robbed on the desert road. If Eliphaz had extended sympathy, there would be more evidence of his piety. And you can feel the disappointment that oozes from Job's pointed words. Those who don't fear God's rod have no compassion for those who feel it. A true friend, if you're a true friend, will try to empathize with a companion who's afflicted. But this didn't seem to be the case with Job's first friend, Eliphaz. Rather than supplying with comfort, he was truly aggravating his grief. His friends failed to see that their aloof bedside manner was disheartening. I don't know about you, but on occasion I've had a medical professional who is all business. Very good at what he does. Very good with the facts. Lousy at the feelings. And it can make a big difference. Friends see his calamity and they're afraid. Job's friends are standing at a distance. He didn't ask them to help. He didn't ask them to make a donation or supply some need. And therefore, he's confused as to why Eliphaz is being so unmerciful. It's easy to speak forcefully of righteousness and issue reproofs. The hard part, which Eliphaz neglected, is heart engagement, weeping with those who weep. So Job challenges him to expose his sin, and he's disappointed that he's so harsh. But then the third thing to consider comes later in chapter 7, where he complains with even more intensity. First he complains of his miseries, and then he complains to God. He says, man has a hard service on earth, and life is hopeless, and death is desirable. He is depressed. Human existence, he claims, is little more than slavery in which we long for the end. Note how he describes later in life as months of emptiness and nights of misery in this sin-cursed world. Job's description of his own physical affliction becomes even more gross and graphic. He says, My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. So Job turns his attention to God and aims his complaint heavenward, and he says, Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. He reflects mournfully upon the fact of human mortality and misery. Like a cloud that fades and vanishes is he who goes down to Sheol. Isn't that true? How the Bible likens human life to a vapor or a mist or a breeze? 
Here today, gone tomorrow, just like the grass that withers and fades. And in such a situation, Job refuses to hold his tongue and he will not be silent. He complains of horrible nightmares that frighten him to the core and he loathes his life. I think one of the things that we learn from this in Job's anguish is that we hear the effect of a spiritual battle that's going on between good and evil. Job was at the epicenter of this great duel between the Lord and Satan. He had no idea of what was going on in the unseen world, but he certainly felt it. The devil had challenged God's integrity and his sovereign grace. It's ineffective, Lord. He's going to deny you. And if Job caves, and if Job denies the Lord, then the devil's claim is true. God had said, do you remember? Have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Satan was in effect calling God a liar, claiming that Job was in it only for the benefits. So he threw down the gauntlet before the Lord. Angels and demons alike were watching this with deep interest. And the stability of God's moral and spiritual government hung in the balance. The whole spiritual realm, I imagine, was straining to see what would happen in the earthly theater. Would Job deny him or no? And all the spirits, both good and bad, knew what was at stake. What would Job do? Would God's grace be sufficient? Would he honor his name? This gives us an idea of the conflict that still wages in the invisible world. Today, it's not exactly the same because since the cross, Satan has been cast out. No longer can he appear before the throne in heaven to accuse the brethren. But I mind you, there is a fierce battle waging all around us and it affects you and me. That's why Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I don't know how the non-believer makes it in a world like this. I can't imagine being a non-Christian with what's going on today. Be constant in following Christ. Be diligent in the use of the appointed means because there is a spiritual battle between good and evil. But then secondly, and finally, I think Job teaches us here the importance of love and compassion in a world of misery. You see, Eliphaz believed in total and universal depravity. It was orthodox. That's orthodoxy. But his orthodoxy was rigid, unbending, and bereft of any kind of kindness or concern. Uphold justice, affirm righteousness, neglect the weightier matter of mercy. It's Christ-like to feel compassion. It's like God to extend mercy to sinners. Jesus even quoted scripture at one point and he said this, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, priority in his mind is given to mercy over worship. Both are important, but one is more so. 
The world is filled with broken people. This room is filled with broken people. Every one of us struggles with sin and misery and the effects thereof. And in the gospel of Jesus, God offers us forgiveness and full acceptance. And there's joy amid suffering in a fallen world. But we need compassion. So you and I are called as followers of Jesus to show compassion to one another. To forgive each other. Consider the words of Paul that's used to conclude the Corinthian correspondence. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. May God enable all of us to do that as we seek to relieve and console one another in a fallen world. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of Job, which are filled with so much anguish, and yet teach us what it is to suffer in a fallen world. We do pray that you'll help us to show compassion to one another as you have shown compassion to us. And Father, be with those who are suffering even this moment, who may be grieved, confused, despairing. Bring the consolation that only you can bring We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.